so incompetent at the criming. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. And I am thrilled for our outstanding panel today. Returning to the roundup is Lucy Caldwell. Lucy is a veteran political strategist, tech founder, and former senior political advisor at the Goldwater Institute. Lucy, it's great to see you as always. Thanks for being here. Ron, it's good to see you. And returning to the roundup is Molly McHugh. Molly is a writer and researcher of Russian influence and an expert in information warfare. Her articles have appeared in Politico, Wired, The Washington Post, Lawfare, among many other publications. She's also an adjunct professor at Georgetown University and the lead author of an excellent newsletter called GreatPower.us. Molly, great to see you again. Welcome back. Good to see you both. You know, I have to say both of you backed by popular demand. We get lots of emails saying, where's Lucy? Where's Molly? Are they okay? <laughs> We're definitely okay. <laughs> actually, We're here. <laughs> actually, somebody did just write yesterday and say, I hope I hope Molly McHugh is okay. We really need to hear from I've her. I've been a little bit MIA <laughs> from Twitter because I've been doing I've been doing things like there's this war. So I'm not sitting on my phone staring at the staring at the box anymore. And, but I've got I, I do need to be more more present in the in the multiverse. But, um, but no, I'm okay, everybody. You know, I will get messages from people saying, uh, you know, you haven't been tweeting. Is everything okay? It's like, that means That's things a, are going well. That means, that means and life I'm is busy. Good. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. On this week's roundup, first, we'll discuss the still unfolding story of the FBI's search of Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago residence. Next, we'll discuss Tuesday's election results and the Senate Republicans campaign arm pulling down ad buys in battleground states. Then we'll break down the big lie candidates for state elections chiefs who made it through their primaries and what's at stake if they win in November. And finally, when we switch tracks over to side B at Politicology Plus, we're going to look up and discuss some of the foreign affairs stories shaping the world and the United States place in it. Again, that'll be Politicology Plus, which is our private ad-free version of the podcast where we bring you strategy and analysis you can't get anywhere else. If you're listening to us in the Apple Podcasts app, you can navigate to the Politicology Show and tap the button that says Try Free, or you can sign up at politicology.com slash plus. We'll dig in right after this. Okay, the Mar-a-Lago search saga continues to unwind. This has been a massive story that keeps evolving. Since we recorded last week, there's been a lot of movement here. So just to recap a few things, Attorney General Merrick Garland announced last Thursday that the DOJ was filing a motion to unseal the warrant obtained to search the residence. Later on Thursday, the Washington Post reported that FBI agents were searching for documents relating to nuclear weapons among the items they seized from the residence. The New York Times reported that investigators were concerned about material from, quote, special access programs. Now, that's a designation that the federal government gives for sensitive operations carried out by the U.S. abroad and for closely held technologies and capabilities. When the search warrant was unsealed, we learned which laws prosecutors believed had been broken and had demonstrated probable cause to a judge in order to obtain the warrant. One was the Espionage Act that's received most of the focus. 
now, the Espionage Act criminalizes unauthorized retention or disclosure of information related to national defense that could harm the U.S. or aid an adversary. Uh, and it broadly covers uh, mishandling of sensitive information, not just spying for a foreign power, despite the name. It also cited the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, which was put in place after the scandals at Enron, and that criminalizes the destruction or concealment of documents, uh, quote, with the intent to impede, obstruct, or influence the investigation or proper administration of any manner. And also Section 2071, which criminalizes theft or destruction of government documents. Now, much of the conversation has revolved around whether or not Trump had declassified the documents before he left the White House, but according to reporting in the New York Times, none of these laws actually depend on whether the documents are classified. And Trump's team has claimed that he had issued standing orders that any documents, quote, removed from the Oval Office and taken to the residence were deemed to be declassified from the moment he removed them. Former DHS Secretary Jay Johnson, who had also been general counsel to the Defense Department, called that idea laughable and likened it to saying the speed limit on the New Jersey Turnpike is whatever the governor chooses to drive at any given moment. So there are a ton of tentacles to this story, a ton of implications, and even as we record, news is breaking. So I just want to start with a general sort of temperature check and see how you guys are thinking about this evolving story and what your thoughts on the most significant pieces of it are so far. Lucy, do you want to lead off? Sure. I mean, I think that the the you just honed in on one of the most interesting questions that this raises. And even some never Trumpers have made the argument that, you know, okay, it's not a good look, but yes, the president has the power to classify and declassify kind of at will. I'm super interested in how that evolves as we as this story evolves. I mean, that doesn't make any sense in a lot of ways, right? It also means that shouldn't a declassified document, especially troves of declassified documents, wouldn't we need other people to know that those are declassified? Wouldn't there be a whole treatment of those documents that unfolds because of that? So I think there will be interesting uh, precedent set from this. And so I'm kind of excited about that. Yeah. Uh, Molly, what's your general sense of how, how this is playing out so far? Well, I mean, initially it's sort of like, well, finally, right. I mean, yeah. it's what, eight, 18 months from when these clowns packed up and rolled out of Dodge, apparently with 30 plus dot boxes of classified material in the back of the station wagon. And like just now, people are like, hey, you know that stuff you didn't give us back before? We really need you to give it back to us now. I mean, to me, this is just an astonishing story. And every clown that is trying to make an excuse for the clowning of this is ridiculous. These are sensitive. It doesn't matter if it's classified or not classified. These are sensitive materials for U.S. national security. This is the key thing. It doesn't matter if the president decides this photo is now declassified if it's something that is still sensitive to U.S. national security and not an Iranian missile site somewhere, which he famously posted on Twitter, thus declassifying it, quote unquote, um, it's still sensitive to U.S. national security. And I think this is the point that people are trying to make is like the president doesn't get to take home nuclear secrets and put them in his drawer and say, no, no, I've declassified this because that is absolutely not true. Like you did not declassify that. That is still sensitive to U.S. national security. We do not want our allies or adversaries to have access to that information in many cases. So this idea that like he's got some special rule that he like created with his magic wizard wand of that he can no like this is just false. And 
anybody trying to argue that he has the power to do this, this is not in that category. And I think that's why they have been going to effort to make clear this is not like the time he revealed the sources and methods of U.S. intelligence collection to the Russian foreign minister in the Oval Office. This is not like all the times he's clearly been handing out goodies to whoever was coming by to show how smart he was. But like he has this collection of little favors at Mar-a-Lago to hand out to I'm guessing whoever wants to pay for them. Like this is bananas, bananas that anybody is even debating that this should, it's not like it's in a presidential library somewhere with like limited access and people are tracking who's looking at, no, like it's in his freaking personal house. It's crazy. Like every bit of money that that family has gotten since they left the white house should be questioned. Why did they get that money? And what were they really being paid for? And we know about some of the money. We know some of it was, yeah. you know, yeah. crazy I mean, deals. Jerry Kushner's billions of dollars from right. random Emiratis. Oh, I'm sure totally honest. Like they just thought he was a great investment. Sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Lucy, when you when you guest hosted a while back, you talked about the Live Golf Tour, right? The Saudi government backed golf tour that Kushner is reportedly working with the the tour to secure a TV deal and they hosted a live golf event at one of the Trump golf courses. So um at Bedminster. Yeah, at Bedminster, right. So you know, there's, there's, there's also this, there's very obviously lots of other opportunities for very valuable and sensitive property of the United States to be, um, bargained with. But there's, there's one piece of this. I want to, uh, uh, sort of re up from last week. I mentioned this last week, but it's an important reminder that search warrants are issued when there is probable cause that there was criming done, not who did the criming right? So it's totally plausible, and everyone needs to understand this, that the Department of Justice is mostly concerned with the security of these materials themselves because they could be compromised by the, you called them clowns, Molly, I call them, you know, the Motley collection of uh, whatever, crooks and scoundrels sliding through the turnstiles at Mar-a-Lago, right? There's all kinds of vulnerabilities that having these documents just out there somewhere creates, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you know Trump himself is the is the is the tar- is the target here. They just knew that Mar-a-Lago is where they were. So we just want to be careful not to jump to too many um, you know Trump personal conclusions here, right? So um, go ahead. Yes, but at the same time, it it may also turn out that there was criming yeah. <laughs> happening yeah. in the back and forth about whether or not. Trump had possession of these documents. I mean, we now know, of course, there was surveillance footage that the feds have been surveilling Mar-a-Lago and seeing after a Trump lawyer said, we don't have any of these docs, right? It's all clear here. We've cleaned out the cupboards, no more docs, nothing to see here. They then have them on camera moving classified documents, right? So even there may be crimes being committed in the in the time frame where they perhaps were investigating crimes that do not have to do with Trump, but perhaps then some crimes happened in the back and forth yeah. of the investigation. And that happens. Totally. And one of the things, by the way, I think one of the more recent examples of people being charged and convicted um, uh, or, or under the Espionage Act would be the reality winner case. And I think it was in 2017. And that was that was essentially how the world learned or at least confirmed that Russia had meddled in our elections in 2016 because the documents leaked to the intercept um, were essentially the intelligence community's uh, 
general assessment of what had happened in 2016. And that person, Reality Winner, was convicted under the Espionage Act. Now, she wasn't directly coordinating with a federal, with a, you know, with a foreign enemy or an adversary. She had just leaked them to the media. So there's there's lots of circumstances under which you could be you could be charged and there's there's lots of criming potential here, is the is the is the bottom line. And in the case of Reality Winner, the question then culturally became, well, did she commit a crime or is she a whistleblower? Right. right? I don't think anyone thinks there's any chance that DJT right. is some kind of benevolent whistleblower. Right. Right. But you know, yeah. fantasy is reality in the minds of his supporters. So yeah. of course what I just said is probably not even true. You raised a couple of good points that I just wanted to quickly re-emphasize. One is that the Espionage Act is not just passing secrets to foreign whoever's. It's collecting, maintaining, and transmitting in any form sensitive information for the United States. So I, as a person who doesn't have the right to have it, or even as a person who does have the right to have it, brings it home and puts it on the kitchen table, that can be prosecuted because you're not handling sensitive information correctly. So this has nothing to do with foreign anything. It's just like, are you screwing up your obligation to defend U.S. national security? And uh, I think that's important to um, reemphasize. And one was this point about the stuff being moved around in Mar-a-Lago, which is just like, again, mind-boggling because it's not like you're sending your super high-level former chief of staff to move the boxes. Any random staffer who is being asked to move boxes, shuffle boxes, sweep the room, whatever, ha- could just paw through this stuff. And like, we have no idea, probably, except apparently they've been surveilled the whole time, who actually has been going through this material um, and, you know, who has access to what and who has what pictures on their cell phones. And like, it's just insane, insane. Yeah. Lucy, what were you going to say? I was just going to say that also, how hard is it to hide moving documents? I mean, how hard could that be? (laughs) They're, once again, so incompetent at the criming. Yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, Molly, there's one thing I'd hope you can help us understand, which is, you know, the, the, we'll we'll get to the, the, you know, the politics of this and the, you know, the rest of the media coverage. But one thing that has popped up from the right, from the, from the MAGA right is, yeah, but Obama had 30, you know, you know, millions of documents or whatever. Uh, What is the difference here between, for example, Obama's classified documents at his, you know, in Chicago and, you know, Hillary Clinton's emails on her server? Why is this different? Um, it's different in many respects. I think one is the way in which the material is being kept, which is boxes of paper, which is classic Donald Trump, right? Mr. Old School doesn't understand the the internet except this tweet box thing. And like, so I think the way that it's being kept is like, it's very hard to monitor and track, uh, which is, which is very interesting. And there's this idea that they thought they were being very clever in terms of like, Nobody knows we're taking these things. We're just mixing them in with our home goods as we move out of the White House, right? And um, so I think that it's just like the whole way this has been handled is uh, not good. The other is there have been multiple layers of requests which are coming out as this is being discussed to to clarify what they have, to return specific documents. They have said they have returned them. They lied. I think this aspect of the fact that the lawyers lied about surrendering the materials that they had taken um, is extremely important because it indicates intent of wrongdoing. It's not just, you know, we thought this was cool, like we wanted to keep the 
Britain's nuclear secrets on our wall as a memento. This this is like evidence that there was intent of wrongdoing is the layers of lying to maintain this material that they clearly believe there is some profit to be had from as it is there at the center of the Trump empire and not somewhere else, right? So I just think every yeah. indication we have yeah. is that this material is being used for Trump and his family's personal gain in some aspect. And I'm not saying it's necessarily cash. I believe there probably is an aspect of this because that's how they think. Um, but it is leveraging material that they had access to while in office um, for personal gain now of some variety. And we do not know that that is not political, that that is not part of the alliance forging they've been doing globally with various creepies and other clowns um, to build this idea of like a national, an international sort of Trump syndicate. Um, people who be- think the same things, believe the same things, the work that Steve Bannon is out in the world doing. Like, we don't know what this stuff is being used for. Um, and it's incredibly powerful material. It's not just about its value as, you know, secrets, uh, wealth, uh, being able to produce weapons, being able to produce whatever it is, you know, intellectually, various kinds of intellectual property being used for personal gain. But um, it's about its its ability to translate those things, information, targeting information, maps, uh, how a nation might make decisions about its own nuclear interests, or what you would do in a time of war, Those are invaluable things to both allies and adversaries in some respects um, who do not have access to that information usually. Uh, And having those things and being willing to leverage them for yourself um, uh, is extremely, extremely powerful and dangerous when in the hands of people like this. And I know that there are people who believe, I'm sure, that the Obamas and the Clintons were doing the same things uh, but there is nothing to indicate that um, that that is the truth. Yeah, and and also you don't execute a search warrant for documents unless you believe and a, you've convinced a judge to agree with you that you're not going to get them back any other way. That they have not complied. That, that there's that's just that that's just a a massive escalation that that obviously a judge signed off on. So. Maggie Haberman at the New York Times is reporting that last week, shortly before uh, A.G. Garland made his statement, a person close to Trump called a Justice Department official to pass a message along to Garland. And Trump's message was this, quote, the country is on fire. What can I do to reduce the heat? How are you thinking about the content of that message, Lucy, and the fact that Trump sent it to begin with? How do you interpret that? I don't believe it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that he sent I think message? it was a threat. Mm. Yeah. I, if, if he sent a message resembling that, it was intended. We don't really know that Trump said send that message. Yeah. And Trump yeah. is also not going to dispute that necessarily if it feels like a staff member went around him and he doesn't know who it is. So he's going to lean into that. I have trouble believing that Trump did that. If Trump used language like that, then I think Trump was trying to signal that he still has a lot of power and it was mm-hmm. meant instead as a threat to Merrick yeah. Garland. I mean, again, that like, look, I can incite chaos, which we know he did, right? We saw that in Ohio. We're seeing that all over the country. I think that Trump, this is the person who tried to impede a peaceful transition of power. He does not care about the country being on fire. This is the person who you know, told told people who rioted and like 
killed and injured people on January 6th, that he loves them very much and they're very special. So I don't really believe that Donald Trump has suddenly become a benevolent actor for the peace, keeping the peace. Yeah. To underscore that power, uh, you mentioned Ohio. Since the search last Monday, there's been an uptick in threats against federal law enforcement. And the, in the situation in Ohio, a man attacked an FBI field office in Cincinnati. Um, that was on Thursday. And a Pennsylvania man was charged with making threats against the FBI on Gab, which is apparently a thing that still exists, by the way. Here's a chilling excerpt from a post he wrote, quote, I'm ready for the inevitable. Once you accept reality for what it is instead of what you want it to be, you can move on with your life and get prepared for the inevitable outcome. I already know I'm going to die at the hands of these piece of shit, child molesting law enforcement scumbags. My only goal is to kill more of them before I drop. I will not spend one second of my life in their custody. So here's the big question. Yeah, go ahead. These are the same people who talk about all Muslims as terrorists. Like just want to say that, right? Right. These are people who sound just like violent jihadist, religious extremists, right? Their religion is Donald Trump and they are on the same suicide mission for a different guy. Uh, The thing that you highlighted that is that quote that you highlighted. That's so fascinating is it's like that person lives inside the alt world, right? It's like, there is no, touch of reality or maybe I shouldn't do this. It's like every one of those terms, child molesting, piece of crap, whatever. It's like all the QAnon, blah, blah, blah. That's like inflated itself six ways from Sunday. Um, this is where, and, and I think for a lot of us, we've moved on from this and it's not so present in how we discuss, uh, uh, you know, the news and what the country is doing and all these things. But like these Remnants of past alternate realities are very real for this percent of the country Mm -hmm. that believes that the end is nigh and violence is probably the answer because it is inevitable. Yeah. I mean, and also it's very real. It's and it's very intense. And now, you know, the, the head spinning politics of this now is that you know, the right is now moving against law enforcement, federal law enforcement anyway, and, um, and attacking Democrats, you know, for, as they have been increasing, you know, okay, the right has been attacking Democrats all, all this year for the increase in crime around the country. And that has been working really well for them, right? But now the MAGA right is calling to defund the FBI, which has in turn opened up this opportunity for Democrats to praise the brave men and women in uniform. So there's Lucy, I, I'm like, just baffled as to sort of how quickly the the rhetoric has shifted on both sides about law enforcement. And I just wonder what you what you make of that and what the net result is going to be of that for the for the public. Yeah, it is very strange, but it's not the only change, actually. I mean, there has been we talked about a version of this a few weeks ago, I think, on the show when we were talking about fundamental realignments. I mean, it has changed so much across the board for Republicans. I think that the law enforcement piece is really notable because of kind of like the fetishization of the thin blue line crowd, which I just absolutely hate. But it's in other areas too, right? It's also, frankly, with labor and uh, and lining up to fight corporations and acting like all business is evil and really making themselves in contrast to big business and and i think you see it it's all part of this populist 
moment. It's it's toxic populism, right? Populism is this idea that there are elites and they're conspiring against you and that you will never, ever be able to rise up unless you all kind of like join arms. That was the Tea Party, right? This is the Tea Party on steroids. And so now it's not just against the institutions, like the people inhabiting the institutions, like the politicians, right? Or the bureaucrats. It's the institutions themselves. Yeah. Okay, let's pivot over to the Tuesday elections. Uh, On Tuesday, voters in Wyoming and Alaska went to the polls for primary elections. Alaskans also voted in a special election to fill a vacant House seat. Moments after Liz Cheney cast her primary ballot, she was asked what was at stake in that election, and here's what she said. Well, look, I think today, uh, no matter what the outcome is, is certainly the beginning uh, of, of a battle that, that is going to continue and is going to go on. And uh, as a country, we're facing uh, very challenging and difficult times. Uh, we're facing a moment where uh, our democracy really is uh, under attack and under threat. And those of us uh, across the board, Republicans, Democrats and independents who believe deeply in freedom and who care about the Constitution and the future of the country, uh, I think have an obligation to, to put that above party. Uh, and uh, and I think that fight is clearly going to continue and clearly going to go on. Clearly going to go on, Lucy. So a couple of friends reached out to me and they're like, hey, like a couple of days ago, Liz Cheney, have a chance? Like, no. But the thing, to, the thing to watch will actually be her, like, absolutely not. But the thing to watch will be what she says at her concession speech. Right. Um, which I assume everybody's watched. How are you thinking about the impact of this election? Then also sort of her posture uh, as of the, you know, the, the evening of her defeat. Liz Cheney clearly thinks that she has a next act. We should be worried about what that next act is. Maybe Liz Cheney thinks that her lane is to uh, run in a Republican primary for president. It's clearly to run for president. And also notable, Liz Cheney's district in Wyoming, that's an at-large House district, right? So she just ran statewide. There's nothing else for Liz Cheney to run for in Wyoming. She can't, worst job in the world, by the way, a House race where you still have to run every two years, but it's statewide, right? Much better to be in the Senate if you're from Wyoming. Uh, Same group electing you. But Liz Cheney running for president in 2024 is potentially interesting and much more likely a disaster for the rest of us. Because if Liz Cheney is prepared to really only focus her attention on Republican primary lane, running against Trump, running against DeSantis, maybe Trump will be in jail, who knows, whomever, that's interesting. It could make that person, she'll lose, but it could make that candidate a little wobblier going into the general If Liz Cheney, if people, and don't worry, there are consultants lining up to let Liz Cheney know that she's the most perfect, most brilliant politician in the world, and she alone can fix it. That's no knock on Liz Cheney and her consultants. Mm -hmm. That's every, the dynamic between every politician and their GCs. If anyone tries to convince Liz Cheney that she should run as an independent in 2024, we are all screwed. Please, Liz Cheney, do not get (laughs) lured into running as an independent in 2024. (laughs) Yes, you have the admiration of so many Democrats, and that is why you should not do that. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) Okay, so here's the thing. The the she has said over and over again, 
I'm going to do everything it takes to make sure Donald Trump doesn't get in the White House again. That doesn't necessarily mean running for president, although clearly she's indicated that. But after she lost the primary, um, her spokesperson told Politico she's going to launch an organization in the next few weeks geared toward educating the American people about the ongoing threat to democracy and to mobilize an effort against, quote, any Donald Trump campaign for president. She talked to uh, NBC's Savannah Guthrie on Wednesday morning uh, on the Today Show. Guthrie asked if she was going to run for president. Here's what she said. Well, what I'm going to do, Savannah, is spend the next several months uh, completing my work in Congress, obviously completing my work representing the people of Wyoming. Uh, we have a tremendous amount of work left to do on the January 6th committee. Uh, and also, though, uh, I'm going to be making sure that people all around this country understand the stakes of what we're facing, understand the extent to which uh, we've now got uh, one major political party, my party, uh, which has really become uh, a cult of personality. And we've got to get this party back to a place where we're embracing the values and the principles on which it was founded uh, and, and talking about, you know, fundamental uh, issues of civics, fundamental issues of what does it mean to be a constitutional Republic. But Congresswoman, and you didn't answer me yes or no. Takes yeah, I know that Donald you... Trump. I will be doing whatever it takes to keep Donald Trump out of the Oval Office. Well, I know you didn't say yes or no, and that's fine if you're thinking about it. But are you thinking about it? Are you thinking about running for president? It, uh, that's a decision that I'm going to make in the in the coming months, Savannah. I'm not going to make any announcements here this morning, but uh, but it is something that I uh, I'm thinking about, and I'll make a decision uh, in the coming months. You're shaking your head a little bit, Lucy. What do you, what, <laughs> the, the, the rhetoric about living in a constitutional republic, educating the American people, all that sounds very, very familiar. Um, and I don't know, I mean, to me, this just sounds like I need a staging ground to figure out what my path is, if there is a path. And um, It's very hard to stay relevant as a never Trump Republican. It, it, that's just the reality. It's too bad. There isn't great product market fit. So figuring out what that is, is a challenge. Uh, but if you believe that the Republican Party is a cult and all of these bad things, I don't know why you would stay in it. Yeah. Yeah. Molly, how are you reading this? She, you know, Ch Cheney's obviously the, you know, the most recognizable anti-Trump Republican in the United States. Um, how is this going to impact how the rest of the world thinks about uh, you know, 2024 and Trump in particular? Well, I think that that aspect and that, I mean, that question is, is a really important question. And like, yes, I understand like zero things about any piece of the U.S. system are uh, actually designed to handle more than two parties at any one time without constitutional collapse happening in terms of how our elections turn out is a disaster for everyone. But also a disaster is the fact that we're going to have what is likely the primaries ahead of us that we're looking at and the range of candidates that we're looking at ahead of us um, and what none of them are actually talking about. And the fact that Liz Cheney has used her position, again, knowing that the easy thing is just to say the Trumpy stupid point to get the rubes to clap their little hands and wave their little hats and vote for her again and whatever. She's never done that. She has taken the path of joining the January 6th work. She has stood up for the right issues. This is, I am not a person who expected her to be this, this outspoken when she, I think, initially started very much as a do your homework, stick to the party line Republican when she first came to office, um, but has become very outspoken on the stuff that I'm constantly saying nobody is freaking talking about. What we look like to the rest of the world that we still that there are still people in this freaking country 
fighting against what to everyone else looks like a proto-fascist movement, that people are talking about it openly, that we're talking about the rift in society that to everyone else is so apparent that this is headed to a really bad place where America is no longer effectively contributing, not even to dialogue internationally, let alone outcomes and and, and trying to shape things the way that we once did uh, in the belief that that was for the betterment of all mankind. Um, no one is freaking talking about any of that stuff except people like Liz Cheney. And she has been more articulate about it than almost anyone else and relentlessly so. And as someone who was not uh, really open some years ago to believing that she was a person of that kind of moral standing within the party dynamics, seeing how she has seen the Trump moment, seen what that is doing to the party, seen how that has twisted the machinery that used to be so powerful within the Republican Party uh, for supporting uh, things that were good uh, and that have now been supporting um, not things that are not good. Uh, I mean, if you think about what the Republican Party was willing to sell to the American people in terms of defending freedom and values in the world 30 years ago, and what now it's just sort of laughing about and clowning around at home uh, and talking about how we need a civil war and all of these things that like, you just, you look at it on its face value and you're just like, you are knowingly, most of you people doing these jobs, running for the election seats, whatever, Selling lies to the American people. You understand that, people in power, but you're selling lies to people because it's the easiest way for you to keep control. And that's how world wars happen. And that's how declines of empire happen. And the fact that no one is talking about any of this stuff, except people like Liz Cheney, um, to me, that is so important in the world that there are people like her that still remain. There's only a handful, but that, that, there, that there are people like Liz Cheney who are using their name uh, and she understands the brand of that in the world, which is highly controversial. Um, but she is using her name and her position and what voice she has left to say the things that our allies need to hear us saying. Here, here. Okay. While Liz Cheney went down... In Wyoming, Lisa Murkowski, I want to run through the the Alaska race really quickly and then what the NRSC is up to. The um, uh, Lisa Murkowski advanced in the open primary in Alaska. She's going to be one of the four candidates on the general election ballot in November. She won 44% of the vote. Trump endorsed Kelly Chewbacca, brought in just under 40%. And Democrat Patricia Chesbro uh, earns just over 6%. Still too close to call on the fourth candidate. Um, who's going to be on the ballot in November. Uh, Sarah Palin also was on the ballot on Tuesday in a different race. She was running in two elections, a special election to fill a vacant house seat. The winner hasn't been called yet. Uh, it could be a couple of weeks before because they're, they're using ranked choice voting for the first time there. So we, uh, we don't know yet. Uh, and also an open primary for that same house seat. And she's one of the four candidates advancing to the general election in that race. Um, she won 30, 31% of the vote. Uh, Democrat uh, Mary Pelota earned 35%. Republican Nick Bagich finished in third to 27%. And Tara Sweeney just under 4%. Um, you know, we let's just let's just, you know, let's save Sarah Palin for another day because, uh, you know, we, we just don't I'd like just uh, the, the prospect of Sarah Palin becoming a member of the House of Representatives to me, just she's going to come back at this moment when the last thing we need is is Miss I can see Russia from my house. So um, you betcha. God. Oh, man. 
that might be the title. <laughs> yeah, you betcha, exactly. But interestingly, uh <laughs> Well done. Sarah Pillen very much on board with the uh the the very odd stream of discourse that is now geared 100% towards discrediting John McCain, which is a whole lane of things that I am not on board with uh, because of what he stands for in the world. Um, and so like that again is like a whole bunch of happenstance that is not, not awesome. Plus the hair, but anyway, that has nothing to do with anything. <sighs> yeah. Okay. But that we're saving that for another day. Cause there's a whole, you're, you're right. There's a whole bunch of stuff there. We also learned this week that the national Republican senatorial committee uh, where in a past life I used to work, this is the Republican Senate Campaign Committee, has slashed its television ad reservations in three battleground states, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Arizona. They have cut more than $5 million in PA, uh, including in the Philadelphia media market, where uh, that would have bled over into uh, New Jersey, uh, Dr. Oz's home state. They've also <laughs> cut about $2 million in both Wisconsin and Arizona. Um, Lucy, what's your read on this move? I think that the cuts in Wisconsin are the most interesting. Uh, It seems like, by every indication, Fetterman is running away with it in Pennsylvania. Also not surprising that Mark Kelly in Arizona is beating Blake Masters, the Peter Thiel Manchurian candidate, if there ever was one. But in Wisconsin, I mean, Ron John is the incumbent. And that state is really on a knife's edge. And a lot of people spent the primary cycle in Wisconsin hand-wringing that Mandela Barnes is way too liberal. That's code for he's a <laughs> black man. Uh, I don't know why I'm laughing. It's not funny. I mean, there's a lot of weird, just sort of not even that carefully shrouded racism going on in that Democratic Party about it's primary, excuse me, about Mandela Barnes's viability. And now he's on the ballot and some other races are looking close. And Wisconsin is the state that, again, knife's edge, uh, knife's edge state. And so I think pulling out of Wisconsin is fascinating. But I mean, Ron, yeah. what do you think? Well, uh, you used to make advice for the NRS. I did indeed. And actually, I was the guy who trafficked a lot of this money. So uh, fun, fun fact, one of the one of the worst, you know, most embarrassing mistakes I ever made in my career was accidentally wiring half a million dollars to the wrong bank account, which which miraculously was recovered. That's a that's a fun uh, war story for another time. But um, but that's how he became a never Trump. <laughs> <laughs> but but here here's the deal. This is the medium is the message sort of when it comes to ad reservations like this, because everybody who's running, you know, serious campaigns around the country is paying attention to these ad reservations. You have intelligence reports that you know, you get on a daily basis that tell you who's reserving ad time where, because that's public, your media buyer will go out and sort of collect this information. And that signals to you, you know, which groups are reserving airtime in advance in which states, uh, and how, how big they are and how long they are tells you a lot about, um, what the pressures are going to be on public opinion and how that's going to move. So this is, this is just, there's just as much of a sort of, um, message, embedded here as there is, uh, you know, actual, you know, the pulling of finances. This says we, we give up. Basically, we don't think these races are winnable anymore. And to that, uh, to that point, Marquette poll just dropped right now. Um, 
that shows independent supporting Barnes 52 to 38 for Johnson. That's up from 41, 41 in June. So clearly the NRSC has internal polling that is, that is showing them, you know, they need to back out and put their money elsewhere. Um, uh, I think the candidates in these races, um, you know, Dr. Oz, Blake Masters, Ron Johnson, these are people who have firmly planted themselves in the, in the Trump camp, the Republican party. So, you know, I I wonder what the internal dialogue is like at the NRSC now, if there's some sort of, you know, Trump has gone, he's had a pretty successful run so far in the, you know, in the primaries, uh, the candidates that have come out of their primaries. But um, I, I, I wonder sort of what recognition there is that, you know, they're having to pull, pull support from these people now. Don't know. Don't know the people running it. So. Ron Johnson in 2016 beat Russ Feingold, a former senator who also had given us McCain-Feingold, famous moderate Democrat, cross the aisle, all of that. And I remember at the time that people in the RNC really believed that Ron Johnson would not make it in 2016. And then the reading of the tea leaves post-election was really that Trump had pulled him along. And so it's interesting now to see where Ron Johnson, who then fully embraced Trump after that, having not been so Trumpy then, but then really going all in, like this is, this is whom I'm making my bed with. Now the, it's coming home to roost for for Ron John. Totally. I want to move over to the anti-democracy candidates. This is a thing, you know, Lucy. We've talked about this a lot. Um, over the over the last number of episodes, but last week CNN reported at least ten Republican nominees for state elections chief have uh, disputed the legitimacy of the 2020 election. So these are people who are now not just primary candidates anymore. The big lie candidates have won their primaries, and they could take office after the November elections. This is the this is this is the thread that I have. You know, we've we've all sort of called the the flashing red light on the control panel. Um, the Republican nominees for Secretary of State in Arizona, Michigan, Nevada, uh, these are all battleground states, have tried to overturn the 2020 results in their state. The nominee in Alabama expressed support for. Uh, the lawsuit to get the Supreme Court to vacate Biden's victory. The nominee in Indiana has called the 2020 election a scam. There are 27 states holding Secretary of State elections this year, and at least 10 Republican nominees have questioned the legitimacy of 2020. In her concession speech, Liz Cheney talked about the impact that allowing election deniers to continue entering office could have. Let's roll that. If we do not condemn the conspiracies and the lies, If we do not hold those responsible to account, we will be excusing this conduct and it will become a feature of all elections. America will never be the same. A feature in all elections is a thing that I started thinking a lot about, um, you know, a couple months ago. Like if this becomes baked in, it's really, really a, a terrifying um, you know, development in, in, in our country. In many of these states, these elections officials would be able to administer the elections and stand in the way of certifying election results. And it's important to note, it's, you know, it, this is not the only way Republicans have tried to position themselves to steal American elections after the ballots are cast. There's, there's, there's two sort of 
competing theories here, right? They're running to fill these seats, but at the same time, if you zoom out, remember that Republicans are also looking to cut secretaries of state and governors out of the elections process using the independent state legislature doctrine. Um, and that's in a case that the Supreme Court will hear next term. Uh, if you want to know more about that, I talked about that last month with Akhil Amar, uh, Professor Akhil Amar at Yale, who recently co-authored a comprehensive originalist rebuke to that theory. Um, that's in a Politicology Plus segment. But Molly, I want to start with you here. That like, how are how are you thinking about this? Uh, about the Republicans' move to shape elections by controlling elections, uh, coming at it from two different fronts. You could call it a pincer. Um, but but sort of the idea that this is the next. This is where fights will be fought to win elections, not not to persuade and win the trust of voters, but actually to control the counting of those ballots. And like that just might be where we are now. What happens to us? Where does this path lead us if that's that's baked in? Well, there, there's lots of good examples in in places that we so, so want to emulate in our political life, like Albania and Georgia and other places where uh both both of the major political factions have become it's this it's this thing where it's then baked in where even before the election is happening you have your narrative about why it will not be valid no matter what the outcome is whoever the non-winner is then goes out of their way to say that everything is illegitimate and it's not just about the certification or not certification of election results and all of the things that then ensue it's that it is a gigantic lever on political unrest and potential violence, right? Like if you are, if you, the political who's what's it's of your force um, are constantly maintaining a narrative that those are not the people who should be it. Like we are the legitimate whatevers. They are not the legitimate whatevers. It's how you get people to the streets. It's how you get people to go attack the FBI. Uh, it's it's how you create, if you're right now the Republican Party, uh, which has very much painted itself in a guise of controlling political violence in this country, um, it is how you create platforms for amplifying violence when you want it to be amplified by taking a uh, what would be an unconstitutional grievance that legitimate Americans, patriots, would want to fight against. Uh, and twisting it and perverting it into this thing where you have people fighting against the institutions that have made this country stable and safe and uh, bold and wonderful for the centuries that we've had. Um, and I don't think they understand that teetering on this. Well, they probably do understand, but just don't give a crap. But teetering on this precipice is not just how they get an unfair advantage to maintain political control and thus make money and be whatever in the world, whatever their minds are thinking for however many more decades. Um, it's the end of America. Like it's the end of the system. It is the end of uh, us being an example. It's the end of Americans believing in a good, optimistic, open-hearted, trust-based way that our elections are going to be fine. Um, if this goes on for more than two more election cycles, we will all just believe this is how it has always been. You just said something really, really important, which is trust-based way. And one of the features, whether the, whether who, who knows it, you know, further down the line is, you know, maybe up for debate, but the people who do know exactly what they're doing are the architects of this approach, like Steve Bannon and Avad Leninist, where the whole point is to destroy 
trust in the system first so that you can say whatever you want. You know, there's this great, there's this great, um, show out now called uh, The Undeclared War on Peacock. And in episode four, um, there's this quote. um, It goes, whether it's faked isn't the point. Everything that's reported is faked one way or another. The point is to get people used to the idea that everything is a lie, that there is no truth. Once they accept that, the biggest liar wins. And I think that's exactly where we are now. And that's exactly what the approach is. Um, of the of the Bannon MAGA wing of the Republican Party, and so the question, Lucy, is like, where does that leave? Where does that leave Democrats? Right, because you know, taking taking these races specifically, and by the way, listeners, you need to go support their opponents. Um, full stop. Jocelyn Benson in, in Michigan, Adrian Fontes in Arizona, Cisco Aguilar in Nevada, Pamela Lafayette in Alabama, Destiny Scott Wells in Indiana. Go support their. Go support them. The 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 question is like ha, Democrats have to win these races. They have to push turnout for these races. They're Secretary of State races, though, and it's really difficult to get people jazzed up to go vote for an SOS. Right? We're in this situation where like the most important thing on the ballot are these really unsexy races, and I just don't know how you how you make them top of mind on you know, for voters. We know that like democracy rhetoric doesn't even make the top 10 on, you know, the list of most important things. So what broadly, what do Democrats need to do here? I think that in a way <laughs> it's easier in places that have been really, um, really burned around this issue in recent years. You mentioned Arizona. It's probably easier to turn people in Arizona out for Adrian Fontes against uh, January 6th insurrectionist Mark Fincham because Arizonans went through the cyber ninjas piece, right? They went through all of that. So there's awareness, but you're right. People generally don't have awareness of what the Secretary of State does, and it varies by state, and it's very confusing. And they also don't even have awareness of how consequential their state legislative races are, right? Because if you don't have a pro-democracy caucus in these state legislatures, you may have a state legislature that will uh, try to overcome the will of the voters. And in fact, the Supreme Court is taking up a case next year, next session, that is about an independent legislature theory. And that is the idea that the legislature can choose electors, right, could choose whomever they wanted um, to be presidential electors and functionally take all state executives out of out of the, the, the situation, right? They would have they would administer the elections, maybe, but then it would be just a like a mock election, essentially. And it would be up to the Republican state legislators in power. And so the stakes are really, really high. In these races, I think that Democrats have a duty to (laughs) allocate resources around these races in ways that they have not historically. I I don't see another way around this. I think that, that, you know, people, other people running statewide for U.S. Senate, for governor, whatever, they need to be linking arms with these secretaries of state candidates, right? They need to be yes. linking arms with slates of of state legislative yes. candidates. It's yes. really important. 
Democrats at the tops of the tickets in all of these states need to have the Secretary of State, like you're right, right on their arm at their campaign rally on the on the literature that they're distributing door to door, whatever they're doing. That's that's one way to boost turnout for these races. It's just it, like it's really hard to um, to overstate just how treacherous this path is and where it leads. It's it's funny to me how a lot of Republicans are saying you know, the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago was a sign of a banana republic, and it's just it's it's amazing to me how we're following that like the, the, we're creating the banana republic here like we're 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 going down that path eagerly and they don't seem to you know um, Democrats don't seem to be putting this at the at the top of the the list and it's really really frustrating. Someone I know who is a well-known um, pro-democracy figure um, said to me privately recently, she said, I can't wait until I don't have to spend all my time trying to help Democrats. And what she meant by that is that it's really hard to stomach things like beating your head against the wall, trying to help people who are doing things, and I've gotten a lot of flack for criticizing Democrats for doing this, but like who are doing things like boosting insurrectionist candidates, right? Boosting election deniers in primaries because they think they're optimizing a better outcome. That completely takes any wind out of the sails of the idea that Democrats are taking the moral high ground, right? And it's also stupid. It's okay to not take the moral high ground, I guess, if you were doing something strategically smart. Boosting these candidates in swing states is stupid, so right? And yes, of course- Fucking careless and reckless. Of course, yes, the buck stops with Republican primary voters, 100%. They are showing us who they are. I don't dispute that. Democrats weren't holding a gun against their head saying you must you know, vote for election denier Carrie Lake or Mark Fincham, or you must vote against Peter Meyer in Michigan. But it's it's not very helpful. I would love to see the Venn diagram of people who are defending Democrats and saying things like, well, they didn't force these Republicans to vote that way. True. With the crowd of people who think that we should examine the role of money in politics. If you think that money and I, I bet it's a perfect circle or almost perfect circle. So if you think that money in politics is a problem, then I think by extension, you should probably have a problem with national democratic uh, strategists boosting uh, election deniers and fringe, not even fringe, you know, election denying Republicans in, in primaries. And I hope I just I hope it works out for them. I really I mean it. I hope it works out for them. I really, really do. You betcha. You betcha. So, don't even. No, we are not bringing. We are not bringing back. You betcha. So uh, we're not doing it. We're absolutely not doing it unless it is about unless it is about taking down Bolsonaro. But um, I think there's a couple of points that I just wanted to weigh in on from that. I think uh, the uh, dabbling back to Brazil briefly. Yes. This is again this none of this is an accident thing that I think is worth. Like where was CPAC eighteen months ago? Oh, it was in Brazil. Why? Because. Bolsonaro gets lots of all sorts of free fun help from all of the Trump world people, including people like Steve Bannon, who they all talk the same. They all use the same talking points. They whip the crowds in the same way. They're using lies um, to undermine the legitimacy of the system. Absolutely. It is not an accident 
that like yesterday, Putin gave a speech basically using Trump world Republican candidate rhetoric to an international audience talking about neoliberal conspiracies and cancel culture being the enemy of man. Like, it's not an accident. These people understand that they are participating in an ecosystem that is being cultivated here in the United States of America by totally cynical assholes, and excuse my language, but I'm using it, who absolutely believe that getting power for whatever purpose they think they're using it for is more important than any of the other things. And like, that is a conscious choice. And I think, so that's kind of the second point is like, I think Americans are still in this place of the it can't happen here mindset. Um, And I think all of us still want to believe that if it did happen here, it would have been from the secret conspiracy, you know, the Dick Cheney-like dudes with Karl Rove in the back room plotting the whatever everybody thought they were plotting back in the day, or the whoever was plotting the Biden whatever, like they're all plotting the things with, with the Biden son somewhere. Like whatever conspiracy is the conspiracy of both sides these days. Like everybody wants to believe if the thing ever happened, it would have been from an evil backroom conspiracy and it is happening in the open and Republicans have spent 30 years building their party and their voters into these people by encouraging and leading with these points. And if they want to say in cynical moments, no, no, we're just responding to what people want. That is absolutely not true. They've been building the party in this direction for 40 freaking years. And I think it relates to the state strategies where the Democrats still have absolutely nothing to say. For 40 years, Republicans have been focused on winning state legislators, using, in many cases, absolutely crazy candidates who have remarkable appeal in a small local county where they are running an election, right? Um, They've been using, uh, they've been focused on Secretary of State races because they understand exactly how powerful those positions are. And in the 40 years that these things have been happening, Democrats have had no response to these things. Like, where, I've talked to you about this before, Ron, but it's like, Democrats talk about, oh, we can't, like, where are we, where's the next generation of whoever, like, where's your national strategy to win every freaking sheriff's race? Like, these are usually uncontested races. You want to talk about how, you know, local law enforcement's a bunch of crazy people who don't understand the values of Americans. Well, where are your candidates? Like, these are easy races to win. What is your strategy for that? And nobody has that. So I think this idea, it's like, you have to focus on the tactics of the enemy. And I am very aware of not using Americans or the enemy rhetoric, but in, in sort of cheap offhand jargon, you have to see what the opponent is doing uh, and understand why it has been so effective. And then the final point that I would make is just for, you know, in the context of the Ukraine war, there has finally been of the current round of the Ukraine war, there has finally been somewhat of an opening of freedom of discussion on whether the problem is the Russians or Putin, just Putin himself. Uh, And it's this, you know, who is responsible for this situation? Is it the Russians have no choice? They just nod their heads along to the crap that's in charge of them, as they have done for the last 500 years, or is it something else? And, um, And there's been a lot of, a lot more reflection from a lot more people who have been unwilling to talk about these things before about the fact that at this point, 30 years on, the Russian people have a lot of accountability for how their leadership has ended up. And I think that is the, and and thus must bear a consequence for that now as we are looking at trying to stop Russia and Ukraine. Um, so no more visas to Europe, no more trips to Italy, no more, oh, I must do my shopping and get my student visa to go study at Harvard. No, screw you, stay home in the country that you made. Um, 
but that's also the conversation we need to have with ourselves uh, for people who were once or still think of themselves as conservatives. Um, it is comforting to ignore the part of your party that is absolutely not attached to reality anymore. And I'm not, I'm like leaving aside political views that, that we don't agree with, whatever else, the things that are lies, the things that are just nuts, this like the, the complete demonization of other Americans and the bloodlust that is ensuing from all of these narratives, it's very comforting to ignore that and believe that you are not, you know, that, that that's not the majority that you stand among. But Liz Cheney was the last one saying the stuff. What are all you guys doing now? Uh, who are you pointing to? Who is the, oh, we had no choice. We had to vote for Trump because the judges or whatever. You got no, there's nothing left. There's nothing left in that tank. Um, and if these people want to be that, the question then for everybody else who is not that is, well, now what? Now that we are up to speed on some of the biggest stories this week, let's talk about what you are watching under the radar. Lucy, what did you bring? Okay. I was going to talk about the fact that this week, um, federal guidance came out about, uh, water cuts for states in the Colorado River Basin and what their water allocation is. It's very interesting. Google it. It's super fascinating. I actually want to make a point about ranked choice voting because we we kind of brushed over it quickly in Alaska, but that is part of the story in Alaska this week. I But I want to mention a dynamic because I think that the democracy reform space is something that this crowd is particularly interested in and attuned to because we're preaching to the choir here. I mean, politology yeah. listeners are yeah. people who know they elections aren't in vacuums. Gerrymandering has consequences, not paying attention to state legislative races has consequences. But I want to mention something because I struggle a lot as a person who's very interested in structural reforms with what will work and what wouldn't. And so I often, and there are so many options out there. And one thing that has happened is that there's been a real failure of people in the democracy reform space to uh, consolidate around one thing, right? Like, is it open primaries, nonpartisan primaries? Is it final five? What is it? So the, the, the Alaska program, I often look at election results that are bad. And I say, would one of these things have made a difference? Would ranked choice voting have made a difference? In Alaska, Alaska is the first state to really implement ranked choice voting statewide, but they also implemented nonpartisan primaries and they're not the only state to have that. But I actually think the nonpartisan primary piece is much more important because if Lisa Murkowski had been in a ranked choice voting scenario in a Republican primary, I think she would be out right now. I think she'd be out. And in fact, when you start using, and and you can't do perfect tabulations, but you could kind of like look at poll results and then just kind of guess at where an election would wind up in a ranked choice voting scenario, you can start to see that it often doesn't make a difference. And in fact, last year, when it seemed like there were a ton of MAGA candidates lining up to run against Liz Cheney in the Wyoming congressional race, a bunch of people, including Don Jr., were talking about trying to quickly pass ranked choice voting in Wyoming because they thought that actually would help 
the MAGA candidates, right? Because they didn't want to have the MAGA vote split up. So I just say this to say, as you think about which structural reform you are going to throw your weight behind and try to get activated around, especially in states where this we could see this passed via citizen initiative, whatever. I'm coming down and I'm open and I do think ranked choice voting is very good, but I'm really coming down on the side of we should go all in on nonpartisan primaries, actually, because then everyone's participating, whether it's RCV or something else, nonpartisan primaries are the way to go. And that is also the system that we see results in um, results in seeing people who are like many of the senators who were willing, Republican senators who ultimately voted in favor of impeachment and moderating forces, not even moderating, but like lack of extremism in these in these candidates. So just think that's an interesting thing to look like look at as a case study between some of the races we're seeing even just this week. Okay, as somebody who's gone really, really deep into the weeds on these structural reforms, I completely agree with you that that should be the number one thing. Like, if we're going to do one of them, open primaries is is like the most important thing that we can do. Not the least for for lots of reasons, but you know, for lots of reasons, people are probably sort of intuiting right now about like extremism um, and the sorting of extremists into general elections because they're compartmentalized. But also, just like think about this. Closed primaries are essentially taxpayer-funded party contributions because the taxpayers, you, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, your taxes go to the massive cost of running a primary election that is only available to people who are registered within one of those two parties. Think about that. Your money goes to, if you're a Democrat, your your tax dollars go to running a Republican primary, vice versa, is also true. So- Opening those and primaries with minus, to, yeah. minus any of the transparency or accountability because p- political parties have gotten themselves Correct. enshrined into our system as these quasi-governmental forces when it serves them, like in taxpayer-subsidized primary elections, but then when it doesn't serve them, they're like members-only country clubs, and we don't get to have any say in how they're run or their whole ecosystem. So it's a it's a bum Sitch. We sh- we don't want that. <laughs> well said. All right, Molly. What have you been cogitating about as we've been dabbing? <laughs> I am going to two finger on the water thing only because, and I've I've mentioned this before, and I think used this segment to talk about this before. The whole like what Washington understands has nothing to do with the reality of the entire western half of the country. Um, and this one is it's becoming a super big thing, and everybody should pay attention. But the thing that I'm absolutely, uh, I've been cogitating on for some time and can't quite break free of the cycle is whether or not the sort of really effective, unbelievable, happy gas attitude of the Biden administration, and I mean that halfway with understanding the joy of optimism, but halfway in the, but what are we actually being optimistic about? vain. I'm wondering how much this may not blow up in there and our faces as a nation, because there are many things in which we are being sold a lot of happy gas, which are not happy, uh, and not in a way that I think is the normal administration, dress it up, sell it as a pony, you know, we need good headlines way, but in ways where it's lulling us into not understanding the challenges we are facing internationally, 
uh, against real threats to the United States uh, and at home, uh, whether that be on a, a pending economic cliff, which many people are predicting, uh, or all of the potential political unrest and violence, which is right there before us, um, waiting to happen. Uh, and not many people are trying to dial it down. And I feel like the happy gas has really turned down the juice a lot on the side of the we don't want the crazy defenders. Um, and there's just no, it feels like there's no momentum on a lot of critical things right now. Um, and if you talk to normal, great, happy, I mean, people who want to believe that everything is fine, they believe that everything is fine. Um, and I just, I'm not sure. I'm always an imagine the worst case scenario person. And I understand nobody really wants to live that way, but like, I really feel in many different veins, the war in Ukraine, what's happening in Afghanistan, what's happening other places in the world, the threats to democracy at home, the optimistic, peppy, look at Jogo narrative is serving us very poorly right now. I think there uh, isn't a better segue actually to our Politicology Plus segment where we're about to flip over. Uh, to where we're going to talk about some of those things and about U.S. standing in the world. Uh, before we do that, actually, there, I don't have a you know big story. I just, just something that sort of to underscore your point, Molly. Um, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about, and going to go research, but maybe listeners should think about this a little bit. I've been wondering lately about what's more controversial these days: um, the idea of gay marriage or the idea of inter-party marriage. Like, if you think about this, would it cause more strife in an average American family for one of the children to marry somebody of an opposite political persuasion than to marry somebody who's, you know, their same sex, gender? Like, that's something I've been thinking a lot about. And just just how polarizing the idea of... um you know, if a whether it's an R or D family, marry, bringing someone into the fold who is of an opposite political persuasion, um, just how much friction that would cause, and whether or not it's more or less controversial than. And I'm going to go look up some data on this. I don't have any at hand to offer, but just something I've been thinking about because it seems to me my my intuition is that it's far far more controversial in a lot of places than. Um, than than what than what we would have traditionally thought of as 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 sort of disrupting a family unit and um, yeah so okay where can everybody find you on the internet Lucy I'm on Twitter at Lucy M Caldwell and Molly I'm on Twitter at Molly McHugh I promise to come out of my Twitter hiatus soon um, and write for GreatPower.us. Yes, I can't wait for the next installation. It's coming. It's one of my favorite one, one, one of my favorite things. Okay, and I'm on Twitter at Ron Steslow. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. 
And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.